Welcome to the National Native Network podcast series. Today we're presenting our webinar archive, Smoke-Free Tribal Housing Policy, presented on March 30th, 2022. To view the webinar video and additional resources, please visit our website, keepitsacred.org, and click the Resources tab and the Webinar Archive tab. Please enjoy our presentation. Good afternoon. My name is Mike Willett with the National Native Network, a program of the Intertribal Council of Michigan, and welcome to the NNN webinar series on cancer risk reduction in Indian Country. This webinar is titled Smoke-Free Tribal Housing Policies. This technical assistance webinar is being hosted by the National Native Network, which offers technical assistance and resources for commercial tobacco and cancer prevention and control throughout Indian Country and accredited by the Indian Health Service Clinical Support Center. Your presenters today are Mike Freiberg, Senior Staff Attorney at the Public Health Law Center, Colin Welker, Policy Analyst at the Public Health Law Center, and Ray O'Leary, Coordinator at Missouri Breaks. We're pleased to offer continuing education credits for participants in this webinar. No commercial interest support was used to fund this activity. At the conclusion of this activity, the healthcare team will be able to identify the risks of smoking in multi-unit tribal housing, as well as the benefits of going smoke-free, examine policy options to consider when adopting a smoke-free housing policy, and locate helpful resources for smoke-free tribal or smoke-free multi-unit tribal housing community awareness campaigns. If you have any questions, please type your questions into the question box the Q&A box on your Zoom platform panel. Questions will be answered during the last few minutes of the webinar. Thank you. And now I will throw it to Colin Welker. Thanks, Mike. All good? All right. Um, thanks for that introduction. Again, my name is Colin Welker, a policy analyst with the Public Health Law Center, and just want to thank you all for joining us today. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started. We already went through the objectives, so there's that. Um, and I just want to mention that the Public Health Law Center is located at the Mitchell Hamlin School of Law in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'd like to just acknowledge that this is the traditional homelands of the Dakota people, and we recognize that the stolen land we occupy comes with a legacy of genocide, oppression, and trauma caused by U.S. law and policy. Here in the Twin Cities, we have a resilient and thriving indigenous population working to reclaim and revitalize the land and strengthen the community in which we sit, and we're honored to help be a part of this work. The Public Health Law Center provides free legal technical assistance to tribal communities like yours in the area of commercial tobacco control. 
What we offer is legal research and writing. We can help develop policies. We can help implement policies and defend those policies. We offer um, publications and creating and create publications. And we offer trainings like today's. Our attorneys do not directly represent anyone and we do not lobby. We believe that the work that we do here at Public Health Law Center must be done in the service of equity. And we do not believe that equity is achievable through a one size fits all approach. And we strive to work to address the unique needs each tribal community has to find solutions that are both equitable and grounded in good law. We're committed to partnering with tribal communities communities and organizations to use the power of law in a way that addresses the social determinants of health um, shown here, especially those who unfairly bear a greater burden of health inequities and other societal harms. Housing is one of the crucial social determinants of health and stable housing stable housing for folks is one linchpin to aligning other social determinants of health. So the last thing that we really wanna do is put people's housing and their security of that housing in jeopardy with the implementation of a commercial tobacco smoke-free policy. So that's why most policies ensure that eviction is truly, if ever, a last resort. And we're gonna talk about um, enforcement plans and compliance throughout the rest of the webinar today. We really wanna protect the housing stability for all, um, all residents. Just want to quickly also mention that and emphasize that when we're talking about tobacco here, we're talking about commercial tobacco, not the sacred tobacco use many tribes use across the United States. Um, and that we understand that some community members or communities may not have access to traditional tobacco and may substitute that use with commercial tobacco. So framing your policy around this could be of particular importance. So why do we have smoke-free policies? Um, we know secondhand smoke is deadly. The US Surgeon General has said that there's no um, risk-free level of secondhand smoke exposure. We also have third-hand smoke exposure, which can combine with airborne particles to farm carcinogens, damage DNA, and lead to cancer. And that's found in things like walls, fabrics, carpets, things like that. Secondhand smoke easily drifts through multi-unit housing. So if we have an elders complex, um, we can think about that smoke being infiltrated from one unit to another. Um, across the United States, approximately one in three residents in multi-unit housing are involuntarily exposed to secondhand smoke in their home. And now in the time of COVID, we're seeing that the secondhand smoke exposure only exacerbates these problems further. Some other things I wanted to touch on were emergency, emerging issues to consider. Um, and we really think that tribal communities can, should consider smoke-free housing policies that include electronic cigarettes um, and smoking restrictions as well as marijuana. So if you decide to include electronic cigarettes and marijuana, both, it's important to develop a comprehensive definition of smoking. And Mike's gonna talk about definitions in a little bit. I mean, that's something that the Public Health Law Center can help with. but. Um, that comprehensive definition of smoking should include the use of e-cigarettes and broadly define that terms. And we have a publication again, which I'll share in a little bit um, that goes into that. We also need to consider marijuana. And we know that the national landscape for marijuana regulation is changing dramatically and almost every day um, and throughout the United States. And we know some tribes are also moving into this area. So regardless of the status of marijuana in your community, there are some pretty compelling reasons to restrict the smoking and vaping of marijuana in housing. Similar to commercial tobacco smoke and vape or electronic cigarette aerosol, secondhand marijuana smoke 
poses public health risks, a risk of fire, increased maintenance cost, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and it, it can really blur the lines of enforcement. So just a little bit more about electronic cigarettes um, with allowing e-cigarette use in your policy or doesn't allow there, if you, if you allow them, there's also a health and fire safety risk. We're seeing electronic cigarettes explode or combust. Um, so there's, again, there's some compelling arguments to include electronic cigarettes in your policy. Um, the fine, again, here, same with marijuana, the fine or secondhand smoke, the fine particles in the aerosol can also pose a, a health risk similar to com that combustible tobacco. We know that there's, you know, there's not any long-term evidence yet about what the what the long-term effects are, um, but we know that they leave an oily and sticky sticky deposit behind as third-hand smoke as well. So we can talk about some of the benefits of going smoke-free. Of course, it creates a healthier living environment. Um, it protects those that are most vulnerable. We can think about our elders and our children. Um, we can think about the economic benefits it can have for a tribal tribal community um, with reduced costs, cleaning costs, um, reduced fire risks, reduced legal liability. Um, you'll, you'll have fewer complaints from residents um, and you can save money on insurance um, and things like that. <clears throat> so I'm just gonna leave you before I turn it over to Mike with these couple of quotes here um, that using tribal sovereignty is the key to ending to commercial tobacco use in our communities. And our goal with this smoke-free housing policy is to create a healthier environment for the seventh generation. So Mike's gonna talk us into talk to us about some key elements for a comprehensive voluntary policy. Uh, thanks, Colin. That's a really helpful background to have um, before kind of talking about what should go into a policy. So I will be focusing on the policy options uh, portion of this presentation and the objective related to knowing what kind of the key policy considerations are as you're putting together a policy. And kind of one of the first uh, distinctions I wanted to highlight is um, knowing whether you're interested in private policies that landlords can adopt or whether you're interested in a policy adopted by a government, uh, such as a tribal council that would apply to all multi-unit housing or also to single family housing within that government's jurisdiction. So I'll start out by talking um, more about comprehensive smoke-free voluntary policies and how to structure the policy to best promote compliance. So these are policies you might be working with a property manager um, who owns uh, several homes or um, perhaps a multi-unit housing facility, um, and they want to adopt a policy that just applies to the properties that are under their control. So if you're working on a voluntary policy, there are some different considerations depending on whether you're working with rental properties or owner-occupied properties like condominiums. And I'm gonna focus mainly on rental properties in these comments, but if you do have any questions uh, related to uh, policies for condominiums or other common interest communities, um, feel free to contact us and we can help. So generally speaking, um, when you're working with rental communities, there's, um, you know, there's one decision maker, um, the lease structure determines how the policy will be implemented. Um, it's management that typically enforces and implements the policy. And uh, graduated enforcement is, is the approach we often recommend. As Colin mentioned, uh, sort of the, the, our last goal, the last thing we wanna do is increase housing instability uh, among renters. So the goal is not to evict people, the goal is to ensure compliance through um, promotion of cessation materials and um, encouraging people to quit. Most people do wanna quit and don't want to expose their neighbors to secondhand smoke um, or the people who live with them. Uh, next slide, please. 
So uh, sorry, this ended up a little bit uh, small here, um, but that's okay. I'll go into more detail on the next uh, slides anyway. Um, this uh, sort of depicts the key components for properties that want to create comprehensive um, strong policies. So the, some of the things to consider are sort of the, the who, what, where, who, what, where, and when of the policy. So who will it apply to? Uh, what products will it be, will be included in the policy? Uh, where will the policy apply? Is it indoor areas or outdoor areas? Um, when will it take effect? So, you know, and that can be helped by clear communication early on and engagement with residents. Those have proven to be key factors in successful implementation of smoke-free rules. Uh, finally, we'll want their um, enforcement considerations. And, you know, we kind of will, you know, if we sound like a broken record, it's because we just want to, you know, one of the arguments that's raised against these policies frequently is that, um, you know, it's going to lead to an eviction, it's going to lead to housing stability, and there are ways you can structure your, a policy to make sure that that does not happen. So uh, next slide, please. So the first thing you might want to think about is, is who the policy applies to. Um, Smoke-free housing policies typically cover the residents, uh, the resident's household, and their guests. Um, there should be no exceptions. Um, it, is, it may be tempting when you're working on a policy to provide an exception that would allow current residents to continue smoking, um, but that approach defeats the purpose of the policy, puts the health of other residents and staff at risk of exposure to secondhand smoke, and it also makes it harder to enforce. So, um, you know, that is something people recommend. Sometimes they end up adopting um, to the extent we advise anyone, you know, which we generally don't, we leave it up to people to decide what works best for themselves. But um, there are, uh, if, if, uh, if a policy to let people continue to smoke, if they, if they are renting in a property is under consideration, we do make a point to, to comment that there are several um, problems with that approach. Uh, next slide, please. So the next thing I wanted to talk about is kind of the, the what aspect of it. Now, um, we have, there's a couple short um, definitions here. You know, these are, you know, we're talking about voluntary policies in this portion of the presentation. So, um, so these definitions are a little shorter than you might see in a formal, formal policy, and that's fine. Um, but a comprehensive definition of smoking includes the whole range of products on the market and some that may not be legally on the market, but are commonly used. So the definition here covers uh, lighted or heated uh, commercial tobacco products, including tobacco, nicotine. Um, it do, we do have the term plant products here, um, but it's important to mention that does, you know, if you are gonna use that, that should not include plants intended for sacred use. Um, this also includes marijuana, whether um, the, and it includes products, whether they're natural or synthetic. And just to talk a little bit more about the reference to plant products, it can be helpful uh, to use a term like plant products to ensure that products like marijuana and non-tobacco products that are smoked in hookahs are included in the policy. But again, you just wanna make sure if you do include a term like that, that the policy includes a strong exception for plants used in ceremonies to make sure the sacred use, uh, the use of sacred products is not restricted. Uh, the definition includes the use of electronic smoking devices, also commonly called e-cigarettes or vapes, uh, which can produce harmful secondhand aerosol. Um, it can be controversial to include marijuana in these policies, um, but multi-unit housing residents and other residents of single-family homes have as much of a right to be free from marijuana smoke as they do from the smoke from conventional cigarettes. Uh, there's no legal reason to exempt marijuana, even if it's used for medical purposes. And there are other methods of delivery that people can use that will not expose their neighbors to secondhand smoke. 
Um, but it is uh, it is something that's frequently discussed in uh, multi-unit housing policies and other housing policies, and it does generate some controversy. So, and just to uh, reiterate, um, a smoke-free policy should provide an exception for traditional ceremonial and sacred uses of tobacco um, practiced by some indigenous communities. Um, to include this important exemption, uh, the sentence um, in the third bullet point here could be included in the definition of smoking to be clear that smoking does not include uh, use of sacred tobacco for ceremonial practices. Um, if you would like more information about the sacred use of tobacco, please visit the National Native Wet Network's website, keepitsacred.org. Um, next slide, please. So, you know, and just to reiterate, commercial cigarettes um, is not the same thing as uh, ceremonial tobacco. So this, uh, Colin showed this publication earlier. It's from the Great Lakes region. It shows how some, it, it goes into a lot of detail about how tobacco is used ceremonial, ceremonially in that region. Uh, next slide, please. So just to go into more detail on the issue of traditional tobacco, I wanted to provide an example, and I'm really glad uh, we have Ray O'Leary here to talk a little bit later about some of the resources um, she's used. But this is how the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe of South Dakota defined uh, traditional tobacco in one of their ordinances. Now, this was a smoke-free ordinance that applied to workplaces, not to housing. But if you're looking to be clear in any housing policy, you could include a reference like this. Um, they had separate definitions for commercial tobacco and traditional tobacco use. And as you can see, the definition of traditional tobacco is, here is very specific. Um, so they know which practices they weren't regulating. The provision was written by a committee working on the smoke-free ordinance and were in, done in close consultation with tribal elders. Um, lawyers had nothing to do with it, which is probably a good thing in this case to make sure it, it covers exactly what they wanted. The definition is fairly long, um, but I would say that's not a bad thing in this case. In the context of Cheyenne River, uh, there are at least nine different ways traditional tobacco is used, and they wanted to make sure each use was identified so that it was clear that it was not regulated. Um, if this is an issue in your community, you'll want to consult with the most appropriate person in your community on how to handle it. It could be elders or spiritual leaders. Um, Cheyenne River, um, Colin touched on this, but Cheyenne River decided to prohibit the smoking of commercial tobacco products, um, even in ceremonial settings, because they felt that commercial tobacco isn't consistent with their traditions. But I have heard of other communities uh, where there's a concern uh, that members of the community don't have access to traditional products, so they would be reluctant to take that step. Both, I would say, are equally valid decisions, but you need to know what is appropriate and what will work in your community um, before drafting a policy or working on a voluntary policy. So next slide, please. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about where the policy would apply. Um, so, you know, this talks, uh, our policies are generally 100% smoke-free, meaning all of the property is smoke-free. So the highlighted language here is from our model policy for condominiums, um, and it's an example of a comprehensive 100% smoke-free policy that would cover all units, um, including outdoor areas attached to the units, and all outdoor areas of the property, including pool areas, picnic areas, and playgrounds. Um, some developments may choose to have certain designated smoking areas outdoors. Um, that's fine, but you'll want to be very clear about where it's allowed. Um, generally speaking, if there is a designated smoking area, it should protect all residents from secondhand smoke exposure by ensuring buffer zones from the building um, and outdoor areas frequented by other residents. Um, the very limited boundary of a designated smoking area should be clearly marked um, so other residents can avoid exposure. Uh, next slide, please. 
So um, just to talk a little bit about enforcement, um, it's important that enforcement be done equitably. Um, you know, and one thing I think we need to recognize is that nicotine is an incredibly powerful and addictive substance. So one of the key principles behind graduated enforcement is to approach implementation with an eye toward assisting residents with compliance, um, in part by offering assistance with their addiction to nicotine. So that's why uh, enforcement is often done in a graduated manner that includes multiple steps before eviction or other penalties are pursued and more often and it's becoming more frequently that eviction is even not is not considered as a penalty at all. Um, first and foremost, uh, graduated enforcement is part of the broader context of uh, the tried and true strategies of education, communication of the policy, and uh, the offering of cessation resources. Um, this more comprehensive approach to implementation will help promote um, stabil housing stability for all residents. Um, there's a couple examples of cessation resources here. I think Colin's going to talk about that a little bit more um, towards the end. So uh, next slide, please. So um, there are many different models of graduated enforcement, and several are included in uh, different public health law center publications. I mean, we have publications that focus specifically on equitable enforcement strategies for smoke-free multi-unit housing, um, but this would also these would also apply if you're working with um, policies related to single family housing. So this is an example from our Minnesota model policy for rental properties. Um, you'll see that there are a series of warnings, uh, verbal and written, um, as well as the provision of smoking cessation materials as part of the process. So if you read it, it says the first violation shall result in a verbal warning and a reminder of the smoke-free policy. Uh, the second violation will result in a verbal warning and provision of smoking cessation resources and materials. The third violation shall result in a written warning and provision of smoking cessation resources. Um, and then, then, you, then this policy starts looking at things like a notice to vacate, but there is an option or uh, to remedy or cure to cure it. So, and as, as I've said, many policies now are not um, even including eviction as a as a possible penalty, just because um, of the concern about housing instability. Another thing you won't see um, in our rental example or our other policies is the use of fines. Um, the use of fines, even those that you may consider small, may have the unintended consequence of um, putting low-income residents into a financial crisis, and that has the potential to um, increase housing instability as well. Um, fines are a frequent enforcement tool if you're looking in the context of uh, common interest communities such as condominiums. Um, that is one of their primary tools, but in the rental context, uh, I think there's a lot of concern that uh, the use of fines can exacerbate uh, inequities. So next slide, please. So, um, you know, that was kind of a, just a high level, high level overview of some of the key elements you'd wanna consider as part of a voluntary policy if you're working with an individual owner. Um, and next I'll turn to um, policies uh, could be, to be considered by governments such as tribal councils. And there's a lot of overlap between the two. A lot of the considerations are the same. Uh, one of the primary differences is that voluntary policies may um, be a little shorter, um, just um, so they're a little easier to follow. Um, but I do want to emphasize that as we learn more about successful implementation of these laws, our thinking has and continues to evolve about how to structure and enforce them. So next slide, please. Colin showed these, um, these quotations as well, but they're, I think they're just so important and they speak to this issue so well. 
Um, you know, the Tribal Epidemiology Centers noted that tribal sovereignty is the key to ending commercial tobacco use in our communities. Um, and there's a good community, there's a good quote from uh, Jim Bellinger with Redcliffe about how the goal of a smoke-free housing is to create a healthier environment for the seventh generation. I just think those are speak very eloquently to um, how important these can be um, and to protect how important they are to protect people from secondhand smoke. So next slide, please. So um, a lot of the considerations, as I mentioned, for government policies are the same as the considerations for voluntary policies. So I won't go into great detail on these points, um, just kind of as a, as a guideline, I'll be using a, a comprehensive smoke-free housing model ordinance that we put together for California communities as the basis for my comments about key elements of a policy. We did a lot of legwork um, to examine existing policies and ferret out the best elements of a comprehensive policy. Um, you can check out the, the model at the link provided here. Um, so these are just some things uh, that you may wanna think about. So here's kind of a broad overview of what's contained in our California model. So the first thing up there, it's a little uh, covered up by other texts, but I did put it first because I think it's one of the most important things to consider is the sacred use exemption. And I thought, um, you know, the example I showed you earlier from Cheyenne River is a great example of what that could look like. Um, a comprehensive definition of smoking in there. So just making sure that um, products that uh, create a secondhand smoke or aerosol that are commercial products, um, you will probably want them to be included uh, in, the, in the policy. So that can be commercial tobacco, marijuana or cannabis, as well as e-cigarettes. Um, you know, and again, just to talk a little bit about marijuana, people may argue that they need it for medical purposes, but um, you know, they their medicine shouldn't be exposing other people to secondhand smoke from marijuana. There are other ways to ingest without exposing others to secondhand smoke and there are other places it could be used. So we, um, it does tend to generate a lot of discussion, but um, generally speaking, many of these policies include marijuana as well as commercial tobacco in the products that cannot be smoked um, in indoor areas. So um, our model policy talking about the where it covers, it covers all multi-unit housing establishments. So um, that includes apartments, condominiums, both new apartments new and existing apartments. Um, in tribal communities, they may wanna consider policies that apply to single family homes. Um, they may not have an abundance of multi-unit housing. And I've heard um, from representatives of different tribal communities that that is the direction that they um, have gone with their housing policy. Um, this sample policy prohibits smoking in 100% of individual units, including balconies and patios. It prohibits smoking in indoor common areas. It prohibits smoking in outdoor common areas, such as pool areas, um, patios, play areas, and so forth. Um, there are, you know, there is emerging studies showing that secondhand smoke um, can pose a risk in outdoor areas as well as indoor areas. So um, it's important to think about that. Um, the model policy we have here um, does not allow for designated smoking areas, um, but uh, that is something that often may get included um, in a policy, in, a, in a, either a government policy or a voluntary policy. Um, it's, it is something that there can be pushback on, so it can be done, I think, in a way that uh, minimizes exposure of secondhand smoke to other people using those outdoor areas, as well as infiltration into the indoor areas uh, that they live in. But um, if you are considering a designated smoking area, it's generally advisable to um, put pretty, um, to define very clearly where it's allowed and have it be in places where smoke won't drift into non-smoking areas. 
Um, I mentioned a little bit about in the context of voluntary policies, allowing existing residents who smoke to continue to do so. Um, when those are included, there's often confusion about who is allowed to smoke, and that can lead to enforcement, challenge, enforcement challenges, um, and ultimately just continue to expose people to secondhand commercial tobacco smoke um, if the people are allowed to continue smoking. So that generally does cause some problems. Uh, next slide, please. So um, it's important with any model, with any um, government policy to have a clearly stated implementation and enforcement plan. Um, so you'll want to have a thoughtful approach to enforcement um, that attempts to minimize the potential impacts on housing stability. So the language in our model focuses on a range of potential enforcement mechanisms. Not all of these may be appropriate in your community, but um, you can certainly uh, think about them or contact us if you have any questions or some of the other uh, TA technical assistance providers that are out there. So kind of the most important aspect of um, enforcement, um, just to start with, is encouraging education and requiring proactive measures um, by landlords to ensure that the policy is implemented. So lease terms um, generally under these policies are required to reflect the law. Um, signage is required throughout the housing um, and graduated enforcement is encouraged along with a focus on making cessation resources available. Um, you know, I, I won't get too far into the weeds on the enforcement mechanisms in our model, um, but generally speaking, our goal was to gain compliance and not to rely on punitive penalties for violations by residents. Uh, we eliminated all criminal penalties um, and, um, you know, and strengthened the hand of individuals to pursue a private right of action against those in violation of the law. Um, we didn't want to include criminal sanctions in there, even at the infraction level. Um, generally speaking, criminal penalties uh, for smoke-free multi-unit housing and other housing policies risk inappropriate engagement of the criminal justice system and law enforcement. Um, and that's particularly risky in the multi-unit housing context where greater proportions of BIPOC people reside. And the trauma of law enforcement interaction is also a significant risk. There's a potential risk of discriminatory enforcement and criminal penalties can put residents housing stability in jeopardy. Um, so um, we don't include criminal penalties. I mentioned we don't generally include fines as a penalty. Um, fines can be onerous and can put housing in jeopardy if they're unpaid. They can escalate to greater engagement with the system. Uh, next slide, please. So um, these are just some more equitable enforcement considerations uh, that we weighed as we created our model policy. Um, we're, you know, we tried to explore unintended consequences and you know, we've heard the concern that people are worried about getting evicted if they report smoking. Um, usually, the, usually the concern is that enforcement will lead to the eviction of the people who smoke, but we have heard of situations where people are concerned about being evicted if they report smoking. So education is a very important component. The lease can contain non-retaliation language um, when we do have that in our model ordinance. Um, you know, the goal, just once again, the goal is compliance. So it's the goal is not eviction or steep fines or, pure, or uh, punitive criminalities. Uh, we want to make sure there's lots of notice provided, warnings, um, a graduated enforcement structure, and we want to support access to cessation. And those are all um, uh, considerations that are incorporated into our model. Uh, next slide, please. So, um, you know, admit uh, most ordinances use some combination of multiple enforcement mechanisms. Um, there's no perfect solution for enforcement. Um, there's some balancing that takes place to minimize the potential negative consequences uh, for residents. Uh, next slide, please. So um, 
administrative penalties um, can include fines, but again, we don't recommend that. Um, could include a diversion process. Um, typically, the process for enforcement involves a complaint being filed first, an investigation by appropriate staff that could be um, housing staff, building staff, or uh, the health department. Um, you know, sometimes uh, ordinances establish that a violation of a housing policy is a public nuisance. Um, and then in that case, the governor can, the government can consider um, charging the, uh, either the resident or the landlord. Um, so that kind of depends whether or not your community has um, kind of a nuisance process in place already, but that is an option that's used. Uh, next slide, please. So um, you'll, some jurisdictions require um, homeowners associations or landlords to take certain steps to enforce the smoke-free policy. Um, so that can include written notice, um, requirements that signage be posted, and a requirement that um, when there is a complaint that reasonable steps be taken to investigate and enforce it. Um, the ordinance could require that, they, that the um, homeowners association or the landlord take those steps, um, and it should be clearly spelled out in the ordinance, and the uh, California ordinance I mentioned is one example of that. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, a final layer, if, you're, um, if you have multiple layers of enforcement, there is the role of residents in enforcement. Um, some jurisdictions require a resident or citizen complaint before um, action can be taken. Um, and that can be used to trigger investigations and next step towards enforcement. Um, some jurisdictions allow um, residents to bring a cause of action for damages or injunct injunctive relief by using uh, the evidence of an enforcement of an ordinance violation um, in a lawsuit, but um, that, you know, that can be a lengthy process also, but it is an option that's used in some jurisdictions. So that's sort of a really quick summary. I apologize if I talked really fast, but uh, with that, I think I will hand it back to Colin. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, again, um, we, we just went over that really quickly. Um, so we're gonna share some resources that lay these things out um, in, a, in, in a different way, um, and they'll be shared with you when you get the PDF of this presentation. Um, <clears throat> so here, this first one is our, our meaning Public Health Law Center, Smoke-Free Tribal Housing Policies document, just a screen grab from that. But that this really goes into detail and provides examples of all of the things that Mike just covered and I covered um, when adopting a smoke-free tribal housing policy. And again, we want you to know that we are also a resource that is available to you um, to offer that free legal technical assistance when drafting or um, researching policies, et cetera. Another one here, this is located on National Native Network's website as well, but it's from a community in Michigan. And this toolkit was really developed um, as, and as a great resource um, that goes through the steps, including tips on adopting smoke-free housing policies and how to navigate um, that process through a tribal housing authority. Mike also mentioned um, cessation resources briefly, but just wanted to pull um, some of these. And I think it's super important that um, we make cessation accessible and a part of um, the implementation and enforcement strategies as we adopt these smoke-free housing policies on tribal land. So some states here, the one on the left is from Minnesota, the other one is from Montana on the top. Um, those are American Indian specific quit lines. Um, in those states, but we also, if you go to the uh, North American Quitline Consortium, you can find out all of the different services that are offered um, by state. 
We shared a lot of these, it's a big, big slide here, but we'll again be um, providing the links to our housing page um, to, this is just kind of a sampling of publications that we have on our website, talking anywhere from, of course, tribal smoke-free policies, looking at exemptions, looking at equitable enforcement, talking about marijuana, just diving really kind of deeper into those things that we discussed. And now I'm gonna turn it over to Ray O'Leary, who's gonna share a wonderful resource. Um, so yeah, go ahead and take it away, Ray. Thanks, Colin and Mike, for um, setting the stage with so many great um, resources and information. And I'll just say that um, I'm presenting on behalf of the Chanli Coalition, which is located on the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. Um, I'm a member of the Trouble Mountain Band of Chippewa in North Dakota. And um, the Chanli Coalition has had some um, great success over the years. We um, first began our um, tobacco journey, I guess, um, with uh, policy and um, education in our community in 2009. And since then, we've um, been able to pass a comprehensive smoke-free air policy um, that uh, was enacted in 2015. And that includes all um, indoor public places on um, the reservation, um, with the exception of multi-unit housing. So it's up to each of the multi-unit housing um, facilities to create their own policy. Um, so um, in response to a lot of interest from various um, tribes on the success successes that we've had here on the Cheyenne River Reservation, um, we developed this Tribal Tobacco Advocacy Toolkit. It's based on a framework that I'll just enlarge here. And I did put a chat, um, the, a link to this resource in the chat if you'd like to um, click around as we um, wrap things up here. But basically the entire toolkit is based on this framework. And um, the idea is um, in order to be successful in, um, I guess our experience has been in order to be successful, we had to um, braid in a variety of education around the um, policy area, community engagement, and policy work. And you can see these arrows just kind of are never ending that um, depending on where you're at in your community, what your resources are and your capacity is, and I guess the readiness of your community, you might um, work in certain areas of this framework versus others. Um, and really there's no beginning or end. It just kind of is an iterative um, process using this framework. Um, but really to, to be effective with education, that needs to involve community engagement and to be effective with policy that also needs to be um, involved community engagement. Uh, so we'll go back to the um, toolkit here. And uh, just to kind of orient you, there is an option if you're somebody that likes um, a printed version um, to print the toolkit in its entirety or by section. Um, there's some background on the Chile Coalition history and methods to develop the, um, the framework and the toolkit. Um, various resources and partners. Um, of course, one of our favorites is Public Health Law Center, um, who's included in here, but um, all kinds of information and, and hyperlinks that you can follow there if you're interested in um, just getting started, I guess, in some tobacco work in your community. And then if after this, this is just a taste of the toolkit and you're looking for um, more kind of orientation to it, um, if you follow this link, there's some recorded videos um, just walking through um, the resources as a whole. But for the purpose of today, we're gonna scroll down here to this policy section. And there's a few areas I wanted to highlight that show um, various resources that are um, fitting for the conversation around smoke-free um, tribal housing. So first in this identify, listen, and discuss, um, this kind of walks through um, the importance of engaging those stakeholders, um, whether that is 
um, maybe a board that oversees a multi-unit housing or um, your tribal um, housing uh, management, whoever that might be that has the authority to pass a, um, a policy to regulate smoking in the multi-unit housing. Um, and then from there, kind of having those one-on-one -on -one conversations, setting the stage of what the importance is. There's been some great resources and data shared um, here earlier in this presentation that would be um, wonderful resources. Um, but I guess the main thing I wanna reference here is on the very bottom, um, we typically have had a lot of success with talking point pages. And what we do is um, whoever's identified to approach the stakeholder um, and kind of introduce the idea of a policy will be um, prepared with some talking points. Um, and you can see here from the talking points in the past, there's a smoke-free housing um, hyperlink. And this takes you to exactly the example that we used um, with some success uh, with multi-unit housing um, facilities on Cheyenne River. And these were our talking points that we um, prepared from a variety of um, resources, but this is something that can be downloaded and modified um, for your um, tribal community to make it um, specific and seem fitting. Uh, but that was what we, we used both to prepare the person that was having that one-on-one -on -one conversation with the stakeholder or the board, um, but also um, to pass on to those individuals that are in a, a position to, um, to create that change. So if we go back to the homepage of the toolkit, just to orient you again, another section in the policy or in the toolkit that might be um, interesting would be the policy writing 101. And um, Public Health Last Learner is a great resource for um, drafting policies. But if this is something that you want to keep kind of more at a grassroots level, there is a lot that you can do to be successful on your own. And we've got some resources and um, tips here um, for that, but also. Down below here, there's several model policies that you can customize um, that we're sharing from the Chumley Coalition that we developed. And of course, the one that's fitting is the smoke-free housing policy again. So if you link to that, again, this is a downloadable um, document that you can edit and modify for your own purposes. But this goes through kind of our, our definitions, the tenant acknowledgement, um, you know, the, the addendum to any existing leases. Um, and it's got some resources here um, from USDA that is, you know, just a customizable um, resource for, for anybody. Nothing fancy. Ours is very grassroots. Um, I don't believe we had any legal consultation when we um, put that together, but it's been effective um, in our community. Um, and then maybe just a couple other resources in the toolkit that might be interesting or relevant would be um, centered around monitoring compliance and threats. And in this section, um, specific to the smoke-free um, policy, I think it's going to be important if you are successful at getting a policy passed to kind of monitor if, um, if it's being followed or not um, by collecting and, and sharing local data. Um, so that could just be um, working with volunteers or um, maybe people in more of a, an official capacity to do some walkthroughs through these buildings and look for the presence of cigarette butts or the smell of smoke that's you know stronger on one floor versus another um, to encourage the tenants to um, try to troubleshoot on their own if they do have a neighbor that's smoking maybe talk to them uh, directly um, first and if that's not successful then going through um, kind of the chain of command to um, to address that but um, but just kind of doing that monitoring piece is super important that, you know, the, the work is only half done once you get the policy passed, the rest of it comes in the enforcement and the compliance of it. Um, 
The other thing that we included here is a lot of our policies, not a lot, I should say, but um, some of our policies over the years have been um, threatened by different um, maybe tenants that really were upset with this policy or individuals that were affected by a policy um, who just said, you know, I need this exception or I, I really don't like this, this needs to go away. Um, so it's really important to um, stay aware of any potential threats to a policy and try to stay ahead, ahead of them as much as possible. Find out what those concerns are of the people that um, are threatening the policy and, and try to address them before it becomes um, too big of an issue. And then, I don't know, I think this is kind of a, um, a could be done in, in a way, maybe if there's, you know, five different buildings of a multi-unit housing um, complex, making it a little bit competitive of saying, you know, building um, A here, you know, had no compliance issues for the last several months, they have their signs up, they're um, enforcing it with each other every time they've, you know, we've done an inspection, there's been no um, presence of cigarette butts or um or smells of, of commercial tobacco and um, really celebrating those wins. Maybe not saying, you know, the other, you know, um, apartment complexes um, B and C really struggled um, and were, were having a hard time, but kind of celebrating those that um, that did do well and, and pass the, the compliance check would be one way of using um, that data and the compliance um, efforts to, um, to enforce, I guess, with others and encourage them to um, comply as well. And then one other section here in the toolkit is supporting ongoing change. And I appreciate that this was mentioned previously, but anytime we're talking about um, tobacco policy specific, it's really important to um, address those system level changes that are, in, are impacted by your policy um, to maximize the excess and improve satisfaction. Um, so again, if we're taking away um, a person's ability to um, smoke cigarettes in their apartment, in their home, um, it's important that we're also supporting them in any possible interest in quitting. Um, so that would be kind of the main system change that comes to mind when it when we talk about smoke-free um, tribal housing units. And this is kind of one of those examples of um, using you know your your local quit lines to um, share re resources, make sure that you're having you know um, informative letters go out. So this isn't just a total blindside to residents, but they're well aware and kind of have that um, grace period um, to. Uh, make change, work on quitting, work on cutting back um, and changing those behaviors. Um, so that would be the, um, the most relevant system level change um, that would be important to consider if you are going the route of a smoke-free um, tribal housing policy. Um, so I guess with that, uh, there's one piece that is not currently in our toolkit that we are working on finalizing, and um, that is a smoke-free homes um, intervention. Um, Sharon River was had the opportunity to um, do a trial of a smoke-free homes um, intervention, and basically we found that it, it was successful, and um, it's uh, working with non-smokers in um, the home to try and encourage the smokers in the home to take their cigarettes outside. Um, and there's a whole set of um, intervention materials that we used with that, that um, we hope to be adding to our toolkit um, in the near future. So check back uh, for more, bookmark this if, if you think there's more in here that in the toolkit that might be relevant or, um, or interesting to you. So with that, I'll stop my screen share here and uh, give it back to Mike. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for presenting, everybody. Um, we do have some questions in the Q&A box. 
So, um, and to our participants, I'm sorry, to our attendees, um, if there's anybody that has any additional questions, feel free to type them into the Q&A box. We will answer questions uh, as long as they're posted in there um, up until the top of the hour. Uh, the first question here says, is there any confusion among residents about including e-cigarettes in the definition of smoking? I'm asking because in non-legal terms, most people would typically call it vaping or e-cigarette use rather than smoking. Do you ever feel the need to create a separate definition for vaping to prevent this confusion? Um, happy to start. And if anyone else um, has any suggestion, has any comments, you know, please jump in. But uh, yes, actually, we often do uh, recommend a, sec a separate definition for vaping. We usually use, uh, we often recommend kind of a neutral term, um, like electronic smoking device. Uh, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but it's one we often uh, suggest to cover these products because they can be uh, called by a lot of different names that sometimes the industry encourages, whether that's e-cigarette or vaping products. I mean, technically these products uh, produce an aerosol and not a vapor. I mean, vapor sounds kind of like it might be less harmful. So uh, we just often uh, will define electronic smoking device. I, I do think it's important, you know, even if you don't have a separate definition, um, just saying smoking includes the use of, of an e-cigarette, you can say, uh, you know, if it's a less formal policy. Um, but we have sample definitions both for smoking as well as for uh, electronic smoking device. If anybody uh, would like them, they can certainly reach out to us. I'm just going to say those samples are in the, the tribal housing resource. So I'll post that again here in a second. Great. Um, then this next person here says, uh, when giving a first, second, or third violation in a rental property, does that include notification that if the lack of adherence to the policy exists, a fourth or fifth violation could result in uh, property vacation? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, I think that's certainly a, a good a good practice to follow. I mean, when a policy is considered, you know, as first implemented, I think it's important to notify the residents about what the enforcement structure is, what the what, what the penalties look like, um, you know, spell out kind of what how the graduated enforcement will work. Um, but then also, you know, it's it's a good I think it is good practice just, you know, if somebody is violating the policy at, at each step to notify them what can happen if it happens again. I think that's just a good practice generally. Okay. Uh, this person here asks, do tribes who receive funding from the Native, Native American Housing Assistance and Self-Determination Act require to, are they required to implement smoke or tobacco-free policies? Um, sorry to, <laughs> I don't mean to take all of these, uh, you know, sure. there's no, um, there's no requirement under federal law that these properties be smoke-free. Um, so public housing under HUD, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development is required to be smoke-free. Um, but tr as this question points out, tribal housing is, is funded uh, under NAHASDA and is not under the Public Housing Act. And there's no smoke-free requirement there. They are able to adopt smoke-free policies on their own, um, but they're just not required to do so. 
And this person here says, uh, Mike, I think I heard you say that some properties are adopting smoke-free housing policies that do not include eviction as a step in the enforcement process. Do those properties have more compliance issues? What's the motivation for residents to comply? And does that put other residents at greater risk for SHS exposure? Yeah, some of the policies uh, that don't include eviction are more recent, um, so there isn't a ton of data about how those are being enforced. Uh, I mean, just kind of speaking about smoke-free policies generally, usually um, smoke-free policies are self-enforcing. I haven't heard of examples of people violating a smoke-free policy repeatedly, um, but that's, that's sort of the push and pull of these policies. There are often uh, goals that can kind of be in conflict. I mean, you wanna make sure people are free from secondhand smoke, but you also wanna make sure that you don't increase housing instability. You know, there are alternative approaches that could be considered like restorative justice practices. Um, but just generally speaking, I haven't heard of examples, but there's not a whole lot of data out there that I'm aware of. I'd say to the, the um, graphic that Ray shared first, really centers community engagement at policy. Um, at the policy process. So I think, you know, engaging community from the beginning and getting their buy-in will help to create a successful policy that can be, you know, enforced by the community and the residents. Um, this person here asks um, about the opinion on using the term nicotine-free homes. I can... Um... Sure, we've, we've toyed a lot with the, a variety of um, terminology because of the sensitivity of just the blanket word tobacco. Um, many tribes, not all, um, do, as was acknowledged previously, have a traditional form of tobacco. Sometimes that does include the actual tobacco plant, um, other times it doesn't. But I think um, this, this notion of like tobacco-free and smoke-free um, being a little bit uh, confusing is definitely a valid thing that from a grassroots level needs to be considered what language makes sense. But I also think um, as a nurse, I think about like um, FDA approved um, nicotine replacement therapy that could uh, also cause problems with language um, such as nicotine free um, that would then imply that um, FDA approved you know medications to support people who are trying to quit um, would not be allowed as well. So we found here on Cheyenne River um, that uh, for the most part using um, smoke-free language and our our local language um, as as we can you know the um, Lakota language has a um, distinctly different word for um, cigarettes as it does traditional tobacco. It's chanli versus chinchasha. Um, so when we can, we try to use the Lakota um, language in our signs and um, that helps to kind of distinguish um, which type of tobacco we're referring to when we post those signs. Um, and I think the other um, really important piece is the definition. So in the actual policy itself, if you can clearly distinguish the difference between um, commercial tobacco versus um, traditional tobacco um, that can help with any confusion or, or loopholes that uh, that people try to get um, through uh, because of that, you know, unique position that many tribes are in having um, both types of, of tobacco. Okay. And this next question here says, do you include language about restricting smoking in residents' cars? I think I saw a restriction in the parking lot. Um, you certainly can. I mean, that's 
if that's one of the things I think if you're working on either a voluntary policy or a government policy, you would want to consider as part of the where the policy would apply. Um, you know, there are so there are policies out there for for different types of settings, uh, you know, like hospital policies I've seen frequently include um, include the cars on on the property and and so forth. So um, it's worth considering. It's it's worth you know. There is certainly a risk of secondhand smoke exposure, both inside the car, but also coming out of the car as people are parking. So if you have a smoke-free grounds policy, um, I think including the cars that are on the grounds would be consistent with that policy. Um, so um, you'll just want to think about you know how it's enforced, how you educate the residents um, about the requirements of the policy, and those you know those sorts of basic considerations that you would really consider with any aspect of a policy. I might also add that um, considering a, a radius with um, within the building might be a, an approach to to consider. On Cheyenne River, our um, reservation wide policy for indoor public places has a 50 foot um, no smoking area outside any um, door or window or ventilation intake from a building, and that may include a portion of a parking lot, but um, that might be an option to not. Um, regulate the entire parking lot, um, but say, okay, as long as it's, you know, far enough from the building that's not going to enter um, windows, doors, or, or ventilation intakes, um, then that would be um, an acceptable alternative. So uh, another way of kind of approaching that and um, with a, maybe a little bit more flexibility to uh, help with enforcement. All right. Well, I do want to just let folks know that we do have another webinar coming up on April 27th, and that's going to be on cancer survivorship care. If you wanted to visit uh, keepitsacred.itcmi.org slash events, you'll see it on our events calendar right there. And be sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Also, if you just go to keepitsacred.org, you can find all of our social media right there as well. Well, at this time, I think we're close enough to the top of the hour. We'll go ahead and wrap things up. We want to thank our presenters from Public Health Law Center and uh, Missouri Breaks. Um, we want to thank Mike and Colin and Ray. And with that, we want to thank everybody for also attending as well. Thank you very much and have yourself a wonderful afternoon. Thanks, Mike. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right. Pleasure talking to you. To view the full webinar video and additional resources, please visit our website, keepitsacred.org, and click the resources tab and the webinar archive tab. Thank you for listening to this webinar archive presentation from the National Native Network. Thank you.